Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, April 11th, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero. And, you know, I've been thinking about how adding the word red in front of a word can make it so much better. You know, you got drum out there. It's a great piece of percussive instrumentation. But you add red drum and now you got an iconic fish. You got the letter D. Great, it's a nice building block of the English language. Add red in front of it. Now you got a place for baby salmonids to live. And horses, you know, I actually, I loathe horses. They're big, brutish creatures. You got that long face and goggled eye stare, but you add red in front of it, and you got the red horse, which is something that we're excited to share with you today. This episode is all about the sicklefin red horse, and we're pleased to welcome our guests. We've got Caleb Hickman, who's a biologist in Eastern Band of Cherokee Nation Indians, and he's also a citizen of Cherokee Nation. We've got Michael Lavoie, who's the Natural Resources Manager for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. So really warm welcome to you, too. Thank you all. Great to be here. Yeah, good. Yeah. So what's the, what's the Cherokee name for this particular fish? I'm going to try my... I'm not going to stumble through that. This is all you, sir. Ugi Dotli wears a feather, has a feather. So I, we just recently had this word passed through the language consortium. So the consortium of fluent Cherokee speakers here. So it was a group that uh, evaluated some of the ideas for, for the name of this animal. So it's been known for a long time, but Cherokee is a descriptive language. So a lot like us scientists do. Cherokees have always described things around them. So it's a really easy way for us to communicate with the speakers we found out is to just talk like biologists and <laughs> describe it. And it's a, so it's a, it's one of the few fish that has that dorsal fin that on top of it kind of looks like a feather. And so that's the idea behind identifying this one compared to other red horse in our area. Okay. That's super cool. So red horses, including the species, they're actually like a special group suckers. And we've talked about suckers in the past. We've got one sucker up here in Alaska. We got the long nose sucker. Talk about the Rio Grande sucker. And suckers all have those special lips. But what else, like if I had one of these fish in hand, what else would I see? Like how big would it be? What would its scales look like? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. These, so these are really beautiful fish found in generally smaller to medium-sized rivers here in, in the southeast. So we've got six species within the drainage that we live in here at Cherokee. Beautiful fish, the larger of the species get up to roughly a couple feet in length, seven or eight pounds, kind of golden, silver coloration. Uh, the sickle fin's really cool. It gets a really bright red caudal fin during spawning, spawning migrations, and the males develop a bunch of tubercles all, all along their fins to help with the spawning activity. Their scales are cycloid, and then uh, again, as Caleb mentioned, this for the sickle fin, this great long falcate dorsal fin that just kind of sets it apart from all the other red horse in the in the world really that's cool so they're pretty big i mean you said yeah a couple of feet potentially and i i was actually reading online and i I saw something about the salmon of the south so i'm guessing that's maybe related to size or maybe their runs or something yeah size and and definitely the runs people forget you know that fish are moving a lot inside our streams not just coming in from the oceans We've got some pretty dependable sucker runs here, here in the Southeast. And um, 
unfortunately, a lot of their their movements and and abundance have just been disrupted by a lot of things like dams and pollution. But um, we still have some good populations of fish that um, provide some reliable runs and uh, you know continue to provide some fish resources for folks who want to go out and catch them. I am a freshly minted resident of North Carolina now, nice. and you can talk to people generally, but I'd prefer it if you just talk directly to me because I'm really trying to up my sucker game this year. <laughs> so if it's something that I'm allowed to go and fish for, I would love these tips personally. All right. So this time of year, you know, we're kind of coming off our winter season where a lot of these fish are more dispersed. They kind of like to hang in, or hang out in deeper pools and backwater areas. But that said, we're kind of ramping up for spawning season. So we're really uh, getting all our gears in order and working with all our partners to um, be ready for uh, when water temperatures hit the right mark, get in the river and try to catch some of these fish so we can better understand their population and continue our, our restoration efforts here at Cherokee. So speaking of this comparison to salmon, we, we spent most of last year up in Alaska and oftentimes talked about the importance of salmon and salmonids to the native peoples of Alaska. Has this species and the other red horses played an important role in sustaining the Cherokee people and other native peoples in the Southeast? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, they're, they're a large fish adjacent to town sites. So all, most major town sites were along rivers. So Cherokee folks, along with other Southeastern tribes, were often considered river tribes. You know, our ancestors uh, harvested animals out of the river and even today, I still talk to people that can tell you stories about different ways of preparing red horse. Some of the old sites where people have dug up middens or trash spots on, on where the old town sites are can find uh, bones from some of these animals. So it's there. There were a, a predominant food source, and if you if you consider a, an animal like the sicklefin red horse, it's huge. So if you use uh, what they what they call a, a fish weirs, so stacked rocks into a V, into a river, you can still see some of those today all through um, Georgia and North Carolina too. But people would set these up with uh, a trap at the end of the V and capture some of these, uh, these large fish. That's what we think a lot of times is going on. So most definitely, even today, people would still eat them, but it's, it's a lot less important in the diet. You know, there are, there are trout that, that folks are more interested in now. Um, so they're, they become, I guess you could consider a little bit uh, culturally phased out. We are really interested in reintroducing people. So it could be a, a chance to get a cultural revitalization going on with this fish and others like it. Yeah. I'll just add like, part, you know, I think part of the reason they are phased out is just because they're, they're tough to catch. They, you know, they're, they're highly sensitive mouths. They'll, they'll spit hooks though. They're just, they're tough to catch and they're not as abundant. They used to be. If you can imagine these, you know, streams and rivers, you could, you know, see walk across them almost probably with how abundant they were and having a big rock fish weir in the, in the river made it pretty easy to catch. So I think that's part of it. They're, they're harder to catch because folks still do love them. They've, they've got really, you know, high quality white, White flesh, really tasty, and but they, they do have quite a few bones, so that can turn people off as well. And there can be a good way to prepare them so you don't have those bones. Yeah, I that's true. So that's... Yeah, I was actually out, and this is kind of a sillier question, but I was out talking with some people the other day, and we got into a little bit of a debate over whether it's moxostoma or moxostoma. And I want to ask you guys what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> you know, I was originally a moxostoma kind of guy, but I've generally shifted to moxostoma based on peer pressure. What do you think? I, it's whoever I listen to. I mean, I'll, <laughs> whatever. I, 
you know, when you when you live all over the country, you just say what other people are saying around you. So I, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't really care. And, and who is the, who is the genius that decided to give it the specific epithet? <laughs> but I know that's a joke, but seriously, you know, you said that this thing was uh, discovered back in '92. That's 30 years ago, and it's still not officially described. Is that right? It is not described still. No. If you guys were placing bets on what you think the specific epithet's going to be, uh, what would you guess? You know, you got the Cherokee name for it. You could go Latin for red feather, uh, pinaminiatus. No, no, Ugi Dotley. Ugi Dotley. We're already getting people to say this. Yeah. You guys should practice it, by the way, right now. Say it one more time. Say it one more time for me. Dotley. Come on. Let's hear it. Ugi Dotley. Ugi Dotley? Okay, the the TLI at the end, you say with your tongue at the roof of your mouth. Klee. Ugi. Ugi Dotley. Perfect. Ugi Dotley. Ugi Dotley. Okay. I like it. All right. There's the name. Quit calling it uh, Sickleman Red Horse now. Just call it Oogie Dotley. Oogie Dotley. How do you spell that? U G I. Maybe add another I because you got to stretch that out just a little bit. Da, D A, and then T L I. Oogie Dotley. That's awesome. We've kind of established we're in the Southeast, you know, near the. Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia border. But where is the sort of the Eastern Band Cherokee Indians? What What is the range, the boundaries that we're actually talking about on a modern map? So today the tribe has roughly 56,000 acres here in Western North Carolina, primarily in Jackson and Swain County, but also some scattered uh, parcels in Graham and Cherokee counties. But, um, you know, this is just a, a tiny footprint in terms of where Cherokee used to inhabit. Historically, Cherokee encompassed eight states in the southeast and hundreds of thousands of square miles. So it's a very diminished landscape and that, you know, has a lot of implications for access to resources and, and long-term conservation opportunities. So it's um it's something where we really, you know, rely on partners to try to have a, a bigger footprint in what we can do within that Cherokee Aboriginal homeland. So, you know, we're, we're working to restore Red Horse here at, at Cherokee, but um, we're also, you know, want, want to get this fish back into the historical drainage outside of Cherokee lands as well. What are some of the different partners working to recover this fish? I mean, you mentioned some of the threats, I guess you mentioned maybe barriers to their migration, water quality. You got some different, maybe non-native species now. What are you guys doing to help conserve them and where are they at status-wise? Yeah, so it's a really cool partnership that's um, been going about 16 years now. So we, um, just to go back a little bit, it, it, this fish, it's really cool. It wasn't really known as a unique species until the, the early 90s. And as Caleb mentioned, you know, Cherokee had a specific name for it. They were really keen observers. And um, it's really a cool example of how traditional knowledge can really kind of help inform Western science. So so anyway, after it was kind of discovered, quote unquote, by scientists, um, then kind of became the real research phase throughout the mid 90s into the early 2000s to figure out where these fish were and, and how they were doing. In the mid 2000s, Fish and Wildlife Service and North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission and the tribe got together to start to, to think about, OK, this, you know, this fish is really culturally significant in the long term. It's endemic to these two river systems and likely pretty rare. You know, how can we start to think about making sure this fish is around for generations to come? So 
we began kind of thoughts on restoration work. So in uh, 2006, I believe, uh, went out and, and started to collect uh, males and females from Little Tennessee River and start to consider what reproducing this fish in a hatchery might look like to, to restore it to areas where it had been extirpated. So in 2005, it was listed as a candidate to be listed on the ESA. And then um, in uh, 2013, ultimately, it was determined that listing wasn't warranted. And that was really because of the partnership that was built and all of the um, kind of political momentum and the funding committed to making sure this fish was protected and restored to its, its uh, original drainages. A lot of good research. So there's yeah. the, the partnerships with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the, the state of North Carolina, Georgia, state of Georgia. We've had several nonprofit groups that have uh, helped out universities. Warm Springs Hatchery has been very critical in, in some of the work we've been doing. They're taking these gametes down to Georgia and hatching them out and raising them up. And it's taken a lot of effort on their part. And, and a lot of uh, tinkering around with diets to get them to survive temperatures, flow rates, all these things that they do. And they bring them back up here and we have reintroductions and we also study the animals, but we're, we're still kind of, we have a lot to learn. We don't know uh, how dams affect them. We don't know um, how large reaches they need. A lot of questions still. So we're, we're hoping to continue that work. One of the founding partners too is Conservation Fisheries out of Knoxville, Tennessee, if you're not familiar with these guys, Pat Rakes and J.R. Mm -hmm. Shute, they're just these foundational legends in terms of fish conservation in the Southeast. They can figure out basically how to breed any kind of darter or minnow that you could think of. And um, they were they were critical in developing the first kind of husbandry techniques for this fish. The way that I've seen these fish collected for all these research purposes is using a fike net and that that in many ways resembles the fish weirs that you guys have been describing and just the fact, you know, you go back talking about how not only did the Cherokee people have a name for this fish long before his research, but the fact that they knew how to catch them well before it took the scientists a while to figure out the best way to do it too. So I thought that that's interesting. Our way of sampling using fike nets, we, we really couldn't get that thing to work on our landscape we seem to have a lot of otters, so they would chew up these nets that we tried to use. So we've been experimenting with other methods. One of them is environmental DNA, and that's just sampling the water. And so you just go out and you scoop this water up. I guess this is a little more complicated than that, but we, we scoop the on our end, it's easy. And then we take it to folks at this lab and they process it. And they can tell us if red horse are there. So the last effort that we introduced fish, we did this just downriver. And we timed it so we could determine the flow of water would reach different areas below. We were able to detect these animals two miles below. So we want to, we've started a process now. We're about to go into a season of more sampling and determine if previous introductions have resulted in these animals staying put or not. Any folks that have done any sort of what we call backpack shocking, where you use electricity to stun fish, and you sample that way in, in rivers and lakes and everywhere. Sometimes you miss animals, and that method hasn't resulted in any captures for us, so we're trying other methods. We're pretty hopeful so far. It looks like we've got some pretty good results so far, but this might be our best way right now of evaluating our conservation efforts and our restoration of the species in tribal waters. To tie it kind of back into the salmon of the south idea, we know in, in salmon that these fish, they 
kind of lock onto these chemical cues in their natal streams. And I'm curious if the red horse have anything similar, and if so, if that plays into when you're trying to reintroduce these things into the streams, or do they raise them to a big enough size in the hatcheries where they have a higher chance of survival? You know, there there are some thoughts of these kind of homing characteristics when we when we started the initial reintroduction work, but really, you know, we're we're focused on how many fish can we pr- reproduce and how many, how quickly kind of can we get them out during the early phases of the reintroduction period. So we were you know, releasing thousands of juveniles, didn't have a ton of resources at the hatchery facilities to, to do a lot of diverse reintroduction work in terms of different life history stages. We're now kind of able to start to maybe consider that a little bit more. We're looking at different size classes to reintroduce, looking at different tagging techniques. But in terms of home range, that's a continual question that we are, are homing characteristics. That's a a question that's that's really not answered yet and, and something really that needs to be further considered in research. You know, these are the questions we have whenever we introduce animals at a different stage in life too. So if you introduce them as fry, you know, when they're these, uh, these little babies, would you introduce them in this uh, natal area? And then if they survive that, um, you introduce thousands, could you then see them later in life come back? But this can take years. This is interesting, and I, I've seen this with some of the other fish we've talked about, but you've got kind of two parallel things happening, right? You've got, you know, proactive efforts. You're trying to conserve the species, you know, revitalize it a little bit. And at the same time, you're trying to revitalize people's interest in fishing. And I think this only, it only seems to happen with fish where you've got, you know, some threats facing it. And then you actually want people to interact with the fish, which is through fishing. Can you can one of you guys or both of you talk about that a little bit and how those efforts kind of go hand in hand a lot of times with fish and maybe this fish in particular? Fishing is a big thing here at Cherokee. We, we operate a really well-known recreational trout fishery. So we, we continue to kind of work within the community and work with our, our youth at the, the central school system to get them out and engaged and, and learn about aquatic ecosystems and get rods in their hands and kids in the river. This past couple of years, we started a worked with partners at the school to start a fly fishing team. And we're, so we've got kids tying flies and we're taking them out in the river later this spring to look for insects in the creek. So specific to the, the red horse, we've been doing a really neat project for, gosh, about 10 years now, located next to one of these historic fish weirs nearby. So we've got this thousand year old rock weir that we can bring our, our Cherokee students out to. And talk about conservation issues and Cherokee culture. And then um, we've actually paired that with actual sickle fin reintroduction efforts. So we'll get the kids to release some of the juvenile fish and um, kind of really have some hands-on experience what of what restoration could look like. So that's been a lot of fun. We also have two other species of red horse that are very common. If you look at these other two species, the black and gold red horse, there are thousands of those in our river. So you can harvest those, right? And those could be sort of our conduit to conservation, I guess. So we want to conserve the, the sickle fin, which are rare, but at the same time, introduce them to a food source or reintroduce people in this case uh, to a food source. And one, one activity we hope to do in the future, near future, is a fish fry with these other two species. And at the same time, talk to people about the conservation of this other species the kind of efforts that we're doing to restore them. When people want a resource, sometimes they'll invest in it. And that's what we want to see. Why is it that the sickle fin is, 
you know, having these threats, but these two other species don't seem to be as much. Is there any insight into that? We all have hypotheses. I'm not really sure if we really know, but I think we were touching on it, maybe. We haven't mentioned the dam. We haven't mentioned the dam, but we talked about migration, right? So these long distance migrations, maybe this has been one idea I've heard. Mike can get a little bit more into it. He's our red horse guy, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the desk jockey. Well, you know, it. hey, he's on my Cherokee name. What about it? It's on my Cherokee name. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mike's Cherokee name. Do you want to know that really quick? Yes, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> Digala Wiggy means a person that goes to meetings. Oh, yeah, yeah. poor Mike. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> Makes me feel tough. So I drag him in the field sometimes still. So, um, but, you know, but yeah, it could be that the species required a longer distance migration. There could have been spawning habitat in, on Cher- in Cherokee waters, but all of our waters are funneled down to a dam right now. It's a small dam, but this dam right on the other side of it, there's a pretty good population of sicklefin red horse. And so we've done a lot of introductions and even after a pretty intensive master's study that, that was done out of uh, Western Carolina University, it resulted in no captures of sicklefin red horse. So they could all be going over the dam and there could be, you know, some issues related to the lack of migration space or maybe it's available habitat. Uh, but we do, these species do overlap in other parts of their range. We know they can coexist, but we just don't, we're still not quite sure why we're not getting them to stick here in the Cherokee waters. And it may have to do with this dam, we think. Mike, you add to it. I know you got lots to say. Yeah, so the the dam here is, is really a, a long-term social justice issue for the tribe. It's been in existence for about 100 years and is just essentially with absolutely zero fish passage, it um, has blocked. What dam is this we're talking about for reference? It's called the Ela Dam. It's a, it's a pretty small hydro dam. As you're probably aware, the Southeast is scattered with power dams everywhere. This one's doesn't produce a lot of power, but it's kind of been just a fixture for a hundred years. So it's um it's definitely prevented, you know, the influx of these larger migratory red horse, like the um river red horse and silver red horse, smallmouth red horse that you you find in the main stem of the Tuckasegee system. But that said, we had a, a really exciting turn of events recently. It started on a sour note when the power company inadvertently released some sediment to the system, which uh, kind of covered up most of that lower Conalefti River with, with sand and silt. But since then, it, it provided kind of a, a really unique opportunity to start to think about this dam and what it means to Cherokee and what, what it would mean if it was gone. So we... Um, worked with our tribal leadership to recently pass a resolution that supports us as a division to start to partner and start to look at what dam removal could look like. And um, we've had some productive conversations and uh, we're, we're really hopeful that that removal might be a real option in the not too far distant future. Seems like there's just a lot of dams across the U.S. I mean, we've seen this issue come up and, you know, they only have a certain lifespan. So I guess my my point to folks listening is that really just kind of notice those dams, notice those culverts that are blocking fish and think about how fish move. And I don't know if you guys have anything you want to add, but it's just something that we kind of have to grapple with, I think, as a society as a whole and really be efficient with where we have our power and where we actually need those barriers to be and, you know, take opportunities to take them out. These fish are, fish are cool. You're right. I mean, this in our situation, you know, a lot of our tribal boundary, if you look at a map, the water drains to that 
dam. You know, that's right on the edge. That's right outside of the tribal boundary. So it's not even actually on tribal land, this dam, but it's right outside of it. And, and that's a barrier. And, and one perspective, you know, from the cultural side of things is that all rivers are considered what a lot of uh, Cherokee folks would kind of translate to the long man, where the head is at the headwaters and you have this body. And if you're, if you disrupt that body, you're cutting off the circulation, the lifeblood of the, of the tribe and, and all the organisms. So dams, you know, aren't really good uh, for, for us anyway. And a hundred year old dams, honestly, they're not providing much power. Photovoltaic sources are much better. You can get a hillside with solar panels and, and get just as much electricity. So, you know, as we advance as a society, I think we can, we can change. And that's not to say all dams need to go, but we can rethink these things, you know, and be more strategic about our power. I think it's really cool when we get indigenous guests on our show. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk any more about just language in general. And I mean, we've mentioned the the name of this particular fish, but is there a larger effort to try to get other folks to use some of those names, fish names or place names, or just kind of build that idea that, you know, there's a lot of different folks on this landscape. And some people have been here a very long time and, you know, working with these fish and conserving these fish and using them. Yeah, those are, I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. We, um, well, I mean, I was on a couple of calls the past couple of weeks and all of our partners, like I said, they're great people. I had them saying the, the Cherokee name, you know, so they're they're willing to, to to try it out, even though it's a difficult name to say. And and yeah, it's an endangered language, Cherokee is. And even though we have over 400,000 people, there's less than 2,000 speakers, fluent speakers left. So we are, it's an endangered language. So um, we we try our hardest to promote the language in every way we can. Uh, the three Cherokee tribes are three federally recognized Cherokee tribes. In Oklahoma, there's two. There's only one here in North Carolina, and it's the only tribe in the Aboriginal homeland. So it's the tribe that's connected to these um, Aboriginal resources, like Sicklefin Red Horse. Uh, we do have a couple of projects where we're working with the fluent speakers to document as many words as we can, but there's also an immersion school here that they're working with kids so they're, they're exposed to fluent speakers every day, and we want to introduce them to natural resources as well. So that's a big part of what we try to do. You know, folks in Oklahoma where I'm from, they're, they're not exposed to these species, you know. So whenever somebody from Oklahoma, a Cherokee there, comes out here, I try to get them in the water or in the woods, on the mountain, and expose them. But to hear the, the names in the Cherokee language is really, really valuable. It's priceless what you're asking there. We... we um, that knowledge retained is important. What's cool that you could maybe speak to is the fact that it's a descriptive language and it's almost mm -hmm. impossible to, just the whole context of it being descriptive makes it somewhat impossible to translate to English. And just, it's just such yeah. a different worldview of yeah. looking at you got it. nature and, and I don't know if you yeah. can speak to that. Yeah, I mean, no, Mike's got a good point and, and that's a hard one to describe. Cherokee is very descriptive. It's hard to explain. It's like, it's like a, a movie going on when you're talking. So it's, it's not uh, nouns, it's verbs. When I talked to a fluent speaker, he said, I have a tough time just translating this to you because in my mind, this feather is moving in the wind or it's, it's moving in the water. And he describes 
in his mind. So he's, he has pictures going on in his, in his brain when he's thinking of these words. Sometimes there aren't words in English. So, so understanding the language is really valuable. And as a scientist, this is really valuable because Cherokee can describe to you its uh, natural history. It can describe to you its behavior. It can describe to you what it does, what it eats maybe, and where it lives. So someone that studies organisms could find this very valuable. Well, thank you both very much. It was great talking with you. And yeah. Good to meet y'all. Yeah. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the, the red horse this week. That's right. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.